Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Before we begin our episode today, I want to give a big shout out to our two newest supporters at patreon.com slash done and done. Thank you so much, Emily H. and Kim R. Holy cats. Y'all are the best. Thank you so much for your support of done and done. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. And welcome back everybody as we continue our journey into the life and death of Marilyn Monroe our Mirrorball episodes in June. When we left Marilyn Monroe in the last episode, it was December 1953, and this episode we're going to enter a whole brand new shiny year, 1954. There are big times happening in 1954 for all of our players, Marilyn Monroe, Peter Lawford, and Dominic Dunn. It's a huge year for all of them, and their individual supporting casts as well. See, 1954 is the year that brings three weddings and a separation. This is the year that Marilyn, Peter, and our man Nick will get married. 1954 is the year of love. I'm going to go ahead and talk about my girl Taylor Swift here in the beginning of this next verse, because I think it really does impact and relate to all three, Marilyn, Peter, and Dominic, this episode. I want you to know I'm a mirror ball. I can change everything about me to fit in. You're not like the regulars, the masquerade revelers, drunk as they watch my shattered edges glisten. All three of our cast today, Marilyn, Peter, and Dominic, will change everything about them this year to fit in. Some consequences more disastrous than others. Let's investigate. As we enter 1954 for Marilyn Monroe, she is on an incredible rise to stardom. And in the middle of her contract with 20th Century Fox, remember, originally signed back in 1950. But even though she's breaking box office records, she is not getting paid near enough. She doesn't have control over her projects or her choices within those projects. Marilyn also is wanting meteor roles, something that shows her more than just a cheesecake bombshell. And Daryl Zanuck the studio head, and Spyro Securus, the studio owner, are not exactly down with that plan. Daryl and Spyros want Marilyn just to be pretty and rake in the cash for the studio. There's no need to take any unnecessary chances, you know, in making any changes where they're not in full control of her. Marilyn, not really a fan of that particular course of action, and Marilyn will be suspended by the studio in January of 1954 for refusing to do one of these routine kind of movie pictures. Marilyn doesn't want to do it. It's not furthering anything about her. She'll take the suspension because she has some other ideas for the month of January. Now that she's suspended from the studio, Marilyn has a little bit more time to get married. 
She is going to change everything about her just to fit in for the guy who she thinks is not like the regulars. Welcome to Husband Category, Joe DiMaggio. Marilyn Monroe and Jolton Joe DiMaggio are married in the very dawn of 1954, January 14th. Years just begun. In the vows that they take, Marilyn Monroe, at the age of 27, will leave the word obey out of the actual ceremony, but it is a quiet ceremony, and this wedding, y'all, takes the world by storm. Here we have the recently retired baseball legend, famous and certainly used to being lauded, married now to the most famous movie star in the world. Joe is looking to settle down, get off the road, and have a nice pretty wife to cook for him and make babies. And, well, she's Marilyn Monroe. The public is fascinated. They're consumed by this romance of these two icons coming together. The lovers will head out for their honeymoon. Turns out that in Japan, which is where the couple's going to go honeymoon, that baseball heroes are a big darn deal. I'm certain this is probably what Joe is looking forward to, but it turns out they can't even deboard the plane. They can't even get into their hotel, and it's not because of Joe DiMaggio. It is because of Marilyn Monroe. Joe is not particularly used to being eclipsed, and the kind of attention his new wife is getting is something that is quite extraordinary. But again, there's no one like Marilyn Monroe. I dare say there will be no one like her ever. While in Japan, Marilyn is going to ditch her new husband and helicopter over to Korea, taking off for two days where Marilyn will perform 10 shows for somewhere in between 50 and 60,000 troops stationed there. Remember, Marilyn is a favorite of soldiers in Korea. She's already been Miss Cheesecake. She's won awards for Stars and Stripes, but her popularity is even more reinforced when she returns home to be awarded Photoplay's most popular female star. Marilyn, within Korea, really does have the chance to perform live. These are some of her first live performances, and she's performing for GIs. She gets to see their faces. She gets to see their reactions and Marilyn loves this feeling. She will say, I will never forget my honeymoon in Korea with the 45th Division. Potentially not a promising start for our groom, but for the bride, March of this year, 1954, will bring a meeting of the minds between the studio and Marilyn Monroe. She'll renegotiate her contract with a little bit more power. Marilyn will also receive a $100,000 bonus as well as land the starring role in the seven-year itch coming to film after a very successful Broadway run. As for the newlyweds, Marilyn Monroe will say that Joe is just the best lover, and that might be honestly where the compatibility ends. Joe is a quiet guy. He's really looking to enjoy his days of retirement. Joe has one really good friend in the world, and that one really good friend in the world for Joe DiMaggio is Frank Sinatra. Joe likes Frank because he's Italian like him. All Joe does is watch baseball. 
And it's my guess that Marilyn Monroe is not too keen on giving up her dreams to hide out in a rural farm cooking steak and pasta for a guy who just wants to watch baseball all day long. Additionally, Joe is like, by the way, babes, you may want to tone down your sexuality. Now, here's the complication. He is in love and in hate, competition, something with the image. He's coming from two different sides here. What attracts him to Marilyn, right, is going to be what ends his relationship with Marilyn. He's insanely jealous. She's a little bit terrified of him. He loves what he sees in her, but wants her to tone it all down because no one else should see that too. Marilyn changing herself to fit in, thinking that Joe was not like the regulars, but perhaps he may be. Got a few more people changing this year. Let's go ahead and enter Dominic Dunn into our 1954 picture that we're crafting. We can't talk about the infamous weddings of 1954 without mentioning his wedding to Ellen Griffin, as well as on the same day, April 24th, 1954, the wedding of Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy. Both couples married on the exact same day in April, albeit these weddings are held on different ends of the United States. Dominic Dunn is inordinately delighted that he and Ellen's wedding receives the very same amount of inches in the New York Times as the Kennedy Lawford wedding does. He brags about it, tells all of his friends, but the thing that Dominic will not brag about and not mention is the day after the wedding of Nick and Lenny, his new bride is dropped from the social register. Not that Lenny cared. Lenny's never cared a bit about the pretension and the social standing and the climb. This is the very thing that Dominic loves. But remember Nick and Lenny have just met a few months before. Dominic has picked her up for a friend of his at the train station. Lenny's coming into town for a theater premiere. And Dominic will take Lenny by his parents' home, and this is when Nick's mother will say, this is the girl you're going to marry. And sure enough, six months later, these two are walking down the aisle at Lenny's family's ranch in Nogales, Arizona. Remember Lenny. She's a legit heiress. Dunn knows that he is marrying up. The young couple will set up home in New York, Where Nick will work at the time on Playhouse 90, they find a lovely rent-controlled apartment with seven rooms near the park. Two sons will follow, Griffin and Alex. This is pretty good stuff, but we do know that Dunn will be coming to California in just a few short years, by like 1957. And when the Dunn family comes out afterwards to participate in Nick's Hollywood fever dream, The family will set up house on Beach Road. Beach Road is on the beach in Malibu, and Nick and Lenny and their family will move into the beach cottage of Harold Lloyd. Now, this is not a beach cottage that you may be thinking of. This is a pretty extensive home, seven or eight bedrooms. But what a scene, because guess who lives just a few doors down from this home? You know it. Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford in their beach cottage. 
built just a few decades before by Louis B. Mayer. If you want the investigation into that home, as well as some of the others on Beach Road, there's a really good bonus episode on the Dun & Dun Patreon where we get into that. There are so many threads in all of that that are just super, super sticky. But I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. Let's scoot on back to 1954 and talk about that other famous April wedding of Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford. Oh my. Now remember, Peter Lawford has been having a fantastic time in Hollywood for years now. I want to take a moment here to introduce another character into our investigation who will become a bigger player by the end of this decade. Fred Otash is this fellow's name, and Fred Otash begins his career with the Los Angeles Police Department, eventually working his way into being a vice cop, which is how Fred Otash and Peter Lawford know each other, at least initially. Although Peter will call Fred in times of need over the decades of which there are a few forthcoming. But Peter Lawford will first cross Fred in the late 1940s when Fred Otosh warns Peter Lawford that every time they bust sex workers, your name is in their books. Could you please tone it down, man? Peter's grateful for the warning and Peter, handsome, dashing, that wonderful accent again is going to continue to cat about, but let's go ahead and get to Peter's bride. Patricia Helen Kennedy was born May the 6th, 1924. She is the sixth of the nine Kennedy children of Joseph P. Kennedy and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. Let's go ahead and just review the Kennedy kids in order here. We have Joe, Rosemary, John, Kick, Eunice, Patricia, Robert, Jean, and Edward, otherwise known as Teddy. Patricia is born in Brookline, Massachusetts, and educated in the best of schools, both within the United States and London. Remember her father, Joe Kennedy, is serving as ambassador to Great Britain from 1937 to 1940. This is a little bit of a step up for her father, who began as a bootlegger and stock market fraudster, so good times. The Kennedy family will land back in the States, though, when Joe Kennedy supports the policy of appeasement and makes a secession of bad moves and is no longer the ambassador. But his daughter, Patricia, she's tall and lanky and athletic and good-looking, hell of a tennis player, hell of a sailor. People say that she could be a professional golfer as well. But Patricia's unlike the rest of her family. She's not competitive. She doesn't really care if she wins or loses, which is very different than the rest of her family. But maybe you can't really take the Kennedy out of the girl. Hold on to that for a moment. Pearl S. Buck, the Nobel Prize winning writer and social activist, will describe Pat Lawford as the most attractive, the least dominating, the most yielding and gentle of the Kennedy girls. Patricia is a model student. She's super smart. She'll graduate from Rosemont College in 1945 with her Bachelor of Arts. And through college, she acts and directs in a lot of plays. And unlike her family of politicians, she's a girl. So there's no need to go into the family business. She's going to follow her own interests, which at this point is theater. Patricia will go to work for NBC producing. This will move her to Los Angeles 
where Patricia works as an assistant for Kate Smith's radio program, and later for Father Peyton's Family Theater and Family Rosary Crusade, which coins the household phrase, the family that prays together stays together. She's in Hollywood, but she is working for good, fine Catholic programming. But she's a Kennedy after all, and she is committed to the Kennedy family and its mission. Pat is a tireless supporter of her brother's campaigns. She will hold tea parties with her mother Rose when Jack runs for Congress in 1946. She will hold tea parties again in 1952 when her brother Jack runs for Senate and upsets the incumbent, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., with Jack winning his first Senate term. It's a large family, and Patricia is smack in the middle of it. She does support the family mission, but Patricia, right, on completely different coast, doing her own thing. More than likely, probably trying to make a name for herself among her family that already does stand out. So let's get Patricia and Peter together. For the year here is 1953, and both of our lovers are not quite so young anymore. Peter is about to turn 30. Patricia is 28, 29. At the time, Patricia now is living in Manhattan in 1953 and will run into Peter Lawford. The thing that's interesting to know here is that Peter Lawford was Patricia's poster on the wall in the 1940s. She's idolized him. She thinks he's divine. And although they have met socially a few times, over the years, nothing ever came of it. Until now, and a 30-year-old Peter, looking to settle down, sees a almost 30-year-old Patricia who might be thinking the same thing. And remember, Patricia, tall, lanky, athletic. She is exactly Peter Lawford's type. But do you remember that competitive thing? Because you can't take the girl out of the Kennedys. I want to talk to you about some other events that have happened within the Kennedy family just this past year. See, with her siblings, hmm, few of them have gotten married in 1953 as well. Her sister Eunice gets married in April of 1953, followed in September of 1953 with the wedding of her brother Jack to Jacqueline Bouvier. Love is in the air. Maybe some sibling rivalry, too. Joe Kennedy, father of the bride, says the only thing that could be worse than having your daughter marry an actor is having your daughter marry an English actor. Pat and Peter will have a whirlwind courtship. They date for two months and announce their engagement early 1953. Peter will say Pat is a tremendous person. She has a terrific mind, a great sense of loyalty, She's so honest. There's no pretense about her at all. And she has such a wonderful outlook on everything. There's an eight-carat engagement ring that comes along with the package. And gossip columnists are like, whoa, this is the romance of the century. But alas, there's a little bit of a hold up. See, Confidential Magazine has a little bit of dirt on Peter Lawford and perhaps his gallivanting sort of ways. And at this time, remember Fred Otosh, who we talked about before? He's no longer a vice cop with LAPD. He's now a private investigator and working for Confidential Magazine. This is when Peter Lawford will call his friend Fred again 
Because Confidential has got the dirt about Peter visiting brothels. Peter calls Fred to have that story killed, saying, Now that I'm married to Pat Kennedy, I really can't afford this horse shit. Fred will get the story killed, and it's back to his happy life in Malibu for a while, but don't worry, Fred Otosh will be coming back into our narrative soon enough. The wedding of Peter and Pat is held April 24th, 1954, at the Church of St. Thomas More. This is located in the Upper West Side, and it was supposed to be a quiet, simple ceremony. 250 guests, all nice and easy. But it does not turn out that way. Several thousand people show up outside the church. All the ladies who are fans of Peter will line the street and scream a lot about their devotion to Peter Lawford and the wedding. There are 20 extra policemen that are hired for security. The entire block is cordoned off. It is kind of a hot mess. Poor Patricia, her bride's veil and headpiece are grabbed on the way to the plaza where the reception is. Patricia and Peter will get a lot of attention on their special day. Not all of it is great, but these two not-quite-so-young lovers are off and destined for a life in Hollywood. That's three weddings. Done and done. Now's a terrific time to take a moment to hear a word from our sponsors, and when we bounce back after break... We'll continue through the rest of 1954. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. And we're back. I want to open this next bit from the writing of Dominic Dunn, where he's giving a little bit here on Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford is not remembered well today, but in the years of our friendship, before the deluge that engulfed him, which happened in the lives of so many people in this story, myself included. He was a charming and funny fellow, the center of a group of friends who rode waves, played volleyball, and gambled at poker. He and Pat, whose brother was about to be the president of the United States, were still very much in love. They ran a house where the atmosphere was relaxed and the dress was casual. Judy Garland used to come to dinner, as did Marilyn Monroe. When President Kennedy helicoptered in for Sunday lunch on a couple of occasions, you knew that where you were was the best place to be at that moment in time. The Kennedy Lawfords will buy the old Louis B. Mayer Beach Cottage. Remember, Louis B. Mayer has two daughters, Edie and Irene. We're going to be talking about them fairly soon. But the Louis B. Mayer home is quite incredible. Not just the home, but its history. This Malibu Beach Road colony really is quite extraordinary. And the Kennedy Lawford home does become the center of all things. It's right on the beach in Malibu. And Peter and Pat are hosting the center of a scene. To get into how heady all of this is, as well as give a little foreshadowing into what Dominic refers to as the deluge that engulfed Peter, I think James Spada does give the best summary here. 
I'm taking this next section from James Spada's book on Peter Lawford called The Man Who Kept the Secrets. After his marriage into the Kennedy family, Peter's relationship with Marilyn grew more complicated in proportion to his growing friendship with Jack Kennedy, the family's promising young politician. Both men had a lusty appetite for women, and neither felt constrained by his marriage vows to curb his desires. From 1954 on, Peter was happy to help Jack on what he called his hunting expeditions, quote-unquote, for girls in Hollywood. One of the women Peter made sure Jack met was Marilyn Monroe. In the summer of 1954, Peter arranged for Jack and his wife Jackie to be invited to a party at the home of Charles Feldman, the powerful agent and ex-husband of Jean Howard. Peter knew that among the guests would be Monroe, the most talked-about woman in the world that year, and her husband of six months, former New York Yankee baseball great Joe DiMaggio. Their marriage was already on the rocks, and it would end just a few months later, destroyed by DiMaggio's jealousy and Monroe's unwillingness to give up her burgeoning career, as DiMaggio insisted, and be a housewife. Marilyn told her friend Bob Slatzer that she had felt uncomfortable at the party because Jack Kennedy stared at her the entire evening. I may be flattering myself, she said, giggling, but he couldn't take his eyes off me. Feldman noticed that Jackie saw what Jack was doing, and she was angry. DiMaggio was aware of what was going on, too. Every few minutes, he would grab Marilyn's arm and say, Let's go. I've had enough of this. Marilyn didn't want to leave, and Feldman recalled that she and Joe had words about it. Okay, so there's a lot happening here. Peter Lawford is already being used by his Kennedy brother-in-law to score chicks, and Marilyn and Joe, they're already on a rocky road. This is summertime. This is June. They're five, six months into their marriage. But let's get us to September 1954, where, Lord, it really does all start breaking into a million pieces. September 1954 is the month that the filming of The Seven-Year Itch begins. The film is directed by Billy Wilder. We've heard much about his wife, Audrey Wilder, already in our investigation. Marilyn, remember, does land the starring role. And in this role, Marilyn will be playing the object of a married man's fantasy, which already probably would definitely be disconcerting for her husband, because he's already struggling with all of this already. But in a bit of kind of Hollywood business, there is a segment of the film and promos for it that's being staged back in New York City on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. That infamous scene where Marilyn Monroe, lovely in her white dress, stands on the subway grate and the breeze comes through and her skirt goes up and the photographs that literally change everything. See, The Seven-Year Itch is not going to be released until the following summer, in June of 1955, but everybody's waiting for it for the next nine months because of this particular scene and everything that goes down. Thousands of people will show up to watch this overnight filming, and the spectators are one thing, 
right? Billy Wilder absolutely wants the buzz. This is how the business works. Marilyn Monroe is doing her job. And the crowds of spectators certainly are expected, but then two other spectators show up for this overnight filming. One of those we know intimately from our Stork Club bonus episode that we covered on Done and Done Patreon, legendary gossip columnist Walter Winchell always sits at table 50 at the Stork Club. Old Walter will helpfully bring his friend Joe DiMaggio down to watch all of this amazing Hollywood scene, and it goes very, very badly. Joe gets angry. He's trembling. He can't even control in his anger. And Walter Winchell's like, hey man, it's only a film. This is the way the business goes, and Joe can't handle it. He will ask Walter to tell Marilyn that he's headed back to the hotel, where after a long night and morning filming, Marilyn will arrive back at the hotel. Herein, Joe will physically abuse her, which after nine months of marriage will cause Marilyn Monroe to promptly leave and file for divorce in October 1954, a mere 274 days after the wedding. In this filing, she will accuse her husband of mental cruelty. And here we have the exit of Marilyn Monroe from Joe DiMaggio, at least in a legal sense, but not necessarily in a physical sense. Joe's not giving up, and Marilyn will take another lover at this time. His name is Hal Schaefer. And Joe will bait Hal in some kind of competition. Joe will follow Marilyn and Hal on a date one night. Joe puts private investigators on Marilyn. He will put eavesdropping equipment into her home and vehicles. Joe maybe is looking to find some evidence of her cheating, but it all does come to a terrible climax one night. This is in early November. Joe, remember, whose only friend in the world is Frank Sinatra. Remember, because Frank Sinatra and Peter Lawford have been on the outs since the late 1940s, early 1950s. But again, Peter and Frank are going to come back around when we get to the Rat Pack. At this point, Frank and Joe are running buddies. They're going to buddy up tough guy style to plan a surprise attack on Marilyn and her lover in a hotel. Where Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio break down the door of the hotel room thinking they have found Marilyn Monroe. But it is not Marilyn and her lover. It is an elderly woman who was perfectly fine and asleep before these two idiots came in, hopped up on liquor and the patriarchy. Marilyn feels them coming. She is in the hotel, but she feels like danger is about to happen and she'll stay hidden. But after this, so does Hal Schaefer. Hal Schaefer thinks all of this is terrifying and he's going to keep a pretty low profile after the great hotel break-in mishap of 1954. Now, even though Marilyn has renegotiated with the studio, she's still fighting a little bit with Daryl Zanuck. See, Daryl Zanuck and Marilyn Monroe are at cross purposes. She is desperate to be understood and to be given credit for what she's doing. And Marilyn at some point is like, forget this. I'm going to form my own production company in which she is encouraged and will find a partnership with her friend Milton Green. Milton Green invites Marilyn Monroe to move in with himself and his wife and their family in Connecticut post 
filing for divorce, and Marilyn Monroe is looking to get settled in for this next portion of her life. She's getting away from Joe and maybe looking for the next changes that are going to happen. 20th Century Fox will suspend Marilyn at this time, and thus begins a battle of wills that we will get into within the next episode. But for this time, I want you to know that Marilyn is in charge. She is forming her own production company. I want to leave her on a very happy, happy note, manifesting hope and joy in the future. At this time, Marilyn will get an apartment in Manhattan. She will have a cat named Mitsu, a cute little white Persian cat. Mitsu is the only cat that Marilyn Monroe ever owns. And she's got something to do on the daily. She's going to be heading out to the actor's studio. Lee Strasberg's wife, Paula, becomes her private coach. And Marilyn right now is thinking that if she can face her fears, maybe those fears will free her. Marilyn also is seeing an analyst three to five times a week. She is centered. She's making some tremendous growth here. Amazing things happening. She's a cat lady now. She has her own apartment. She's in therapy. She's taking acting lessons and planning a production company with a trusted friend. Things are so, so good at the end of 1954 for her. And that's exactly where we're going to leave Marilyn today. Don't worry, friends. We're going to have a new episode on Monday for you, your next done day. And again, if you need more investigation in the meantime, check out patreon.com slash done and done. You'll gain access to all kinds of bonus episodes that attach into so much of, heck, what we've talked about now, Walter Winchell, The Stork Club, Malibu Beach Road Colony, in addition to ad-free episodes. Oh, and book clubs, too. We're going to be reading Joan Didion for our book club in July. So much fun on that community. Check that out if you're interested. And as always, thank you, everybody, for coming to listen, for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails and your kind reviews, and your support on Patreon as well. You're the very best. Until we meet again on Monday, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.